HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. You know the saying, as American as apple pie. It's interesting because apples are not even indigenous to these shores. But long before pie came along, there was cider. We're going to learn all about it today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. And indeed, fall is in the air, and you look around the markets, we've got pumpkins, we have gourds, and we have apples. Apples, apples, apples. But not nearly as many apple varieties as we once had. I'm going to learn all about apples, varieties, and something that has had a bit of a renaissance, and we hope it grows even more, and that's apple cider. Joining me today is apple evangelist, as he calls himself, Ben Watson. Ben is a senior editor at Chelsea Green Publishing, and he is a food and apple activist and a consultant. Uh, Ben is the author of a terrific book that actually is, is I don't know, about 10 years old, I guess now, um, but it's he's into a second edition and then with some additions to it called Cider, Hard and Sweet. And Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks, Linda. It's great to be with you. Well, you know, I said uh, apple pie, you know, as American as apple pie, and people associate apples and America as being, you know, all together. There is some history that goes there with apple, with cider barrels, I suppose, but uh, apples are not indigenous to America, and in fact, apple cider has a history much longer than well than pre-recorded history, right? Yeah, and even apple pie isn't isn't really an American innovation. That's something you should say as English as apple That's pie. Right. That's right. The English right. really developed, you know, got the perfected the apple pies and the culinary apple varieties that were the best for that. Um, but yeah, you're right. Cider has a, a very long history, probably dates back at least a couple of thousand years. Um, to about the time of um, 
you know, the modern era. And um, it's thought that uh, cider probably originated, you know, the kind of cider making that we would recognize now probably originated in northern Spain, which is still one of the um, uh, lesser known but getting to be better known cider regions of the world. Hmm. And that, I mean, in the Roman Empire, that would have been in the Roman Empire, because it was Roman times they had a cider or made, there was some reference to cider. There was. Um, they they called a lot of the stuff that they made pomorum, which which um, is fairly indistinct. So it could have been made from apples, or they also made um, peri, what we would call peri, which from pears. So um, yeah, they had experience with it, um, but it really was only when um, when they started to uh, to go into northern parts of Europe where apples grew very well, and they introduced a lot of apple varieties to certain places like Britain, um, that uh, cider making really took off. Hmm. Well, it was interesting to read in your book that, um, because I was curious about cider and where the word came from, and uh, we see the Roman word pomorum and palm being apple, but you, um, you mentioned the possibility of cider coming from a Greek word. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, Sakara is, is actually, Sakara is, is actually the Basque word for cider, interestingly oh, interesting. enough. Um, but, but, uh, but that's also the Greek word, too. But, um, but, uh, it could have been, uh, I mean, the, if you want to trace the etymology all the way back, it could even be a Hebrew word called Shekar, which just means strong drink. And it's sort of, again, like the, like the Roman word, kind of undifferentiated. Well, in Europe, um, cider, I mean, cider was really, the beverage. I mean, was ales weren't even they weren't even brewing any ales, right? Is that uh, well, take us through it, a little I bit? I mean, again, cider cider has sort of a split personality and and always has. And and in this country, it's nothing new. This has been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, people really have never quite known how to characterize it. It's made from apples, but it's uh, it's not brewed. It's it's fermented like a wine, and yet it's not really a wine because it's not made from grapes. So how do you characterize it? And uh, people have always had that sort of uh, sort of a split personality there um, with it, even in France. And But there are certain areas where apples grow extremely well in certain regions like the West Country of England and Brittany and Normandy and France, and as I said, northern Spain, the Basque region of northern Spain, that really have such a wonderful climate for, for growing fruit that they... Um, it was always a local and a regional favorite, but in terms of national uh, acceptability, it's only been in those years when war or uh, some sort of natural problem like phylloxera, the, the louse that uh, destroyed the French wine industry for several years in the 19th century, then you'd see the rise of cider in popularity all over France, and, mm. and it greatly increased. But it's it's always been sort of a secondary um, beverage to those to, to beers and wines. Mm-hmm. Well, now, and of course, it's it is lower in alcohol content than than uh, well, not than beer, but in wine, right? Yeah, I mean, typically apples just, I mean, it's a function of the fact of how much sugar are in, is in apples, and generally it runs about uh, half as much sugar in the fruit as there is in um, in dead-ripe wine grapes. So, you know, whereas you might have a 14% or higher wine, you might have a 6 or 7% cider naturally uh-huh. you know again without adding any sugar um to the to the cider to uh, to up the uh, alcohol level hmm. well i mentioned um 
apples. We everyone thinks there are so many varieties of apples now because they there's been a lot of work on and you've are uh, have been part of that on bringing back some heirloom and heritage varieties of apples. Um, but I, I was interested to note that. Um, and it was from your book that you mentioned in Normandy, in France, in fifteen around the 1500s, there were 82 varieties of cider apples. Uh, that is astounding, um, especially where we are today. Um, and then there was, right. so there was and a lot a of lot cider of being I, made. I mean, and also, it's a fairly, like most of these questions, it's a fairly, it's a fairly complicated thing to explain briefly. But, but, I mean, a lot of people made cider and still to some extent, do make cider from whatever they have available. Uh, now, a lot of culinary varieties, some of which are pretty good for making a base of cider and some not. But in this country, especially in the, in the um, you know, 18th and 19th centuries, uh, it really was a grand agricultural experiment. I mean, uh, farmers would um, save the pumice or the, 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 the what was left over from pressing cider in the fall, and they would plant it in their fields, and they would select uh, promising, healthy-looking trees that came up and sample the fruits after several years and would grow them out. And if they happened to be a good variety, that's how a lot of our uh, popular even even table varieties got uh, established but in terms of making cider almost any apple makes decent cider um, because once you press it you, you know it just has qualities to it does it is it you have to taste it is it is it sour is it, it going to add astringency or bitterness to it which helps add body just like wine grapes add body to wine but they wouldn't be something you'd want to put on your dinner table uh, you know the traditional European varieties and some of the wild or seedling varieties of apples in this country that were developed have that kind of a an edge to them that make them not good for for eating but uh, absolutely great for fermenting into a wonderful beverage right well and 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 I, I obviously our listeners got the uh, the picture but we when we mentioned cider today especially we're talking about hard cider even though you do um, in your book, you do talk about sweet cider and the pressing of apples of, for just for regular sweet cider. But hard cider is really what we're talking about through history because the cider was all fermented um, that we know of, right? And well, there was no way to. There was no real way to store. No I mean, unless you froze it. Right. There was no no real refrigeration. Way to store sweet cider. So right. this was a method of preservation, really. Uh, in addition to being a, a nice, uh, easy to make alcoholic beverage, it was also you know storing the harvest. Right. Well, cider became. I mean, so popular in Europe that it became a means of exchange, a commodity, if you will, and that carried over to once the. Once cider hit these shores, well, and let's talk about when the apple comes to America. I mean, obviously there were no apples in this country, but when when the settlers came, they well, there were no there were no what we would call domesticated, domesticated apples. Okay. I mean, the, the the common apple wasn't in America, but there are three or four species of at least of of uh, crab apples that we'd call them or, or non non. Uh, common apple species that are indigenous to America. I mean, apples are indigenous to a lot of places in the world, but, but the kind of apples that have been developed, um, you know, that are eating varieties or, or the select varieties, you're right, they weren't 
available in America. And they really didn't come over. They, they came over often as seeds because seeds were easier to, to transport, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Johnny Appleseed was called that for a reason because he didn't actually believe in grafting apple trees. He thought that that was, uh, he was, he was a Swedenborgian, uh, religious, uh, person and he, he believed that it was against God's will to, uh, to graft because it's a kind of cloning. It's vegetative cloning. You're, you're carrying on that for that particular variety. But that is the only way, really, for most apples that you can propagate them, uh, what we call true to type. I mean, if you plant a seed of an apple, it's going to have be cross-pollinated in all likelihood by a bunch of different other wild apples or different apple varieties, and you're not going to get anything that resembles the, the, the parent tree that you're planting it from. You're going to get something that might be wonderful, but there's a very small chance of that. Uh, it might be something, and that's one reason that people made so much cider, because they had a whole bunch of seedling apple trees around that really didn't amount to much in terms of using them for other uses. So they made it into cider. (laughs) Um, And how long, generally, how long does it take for a seedling to produce fruit? Uh, it varies a lot. It varies based on the genetics of the varieties, but it could be, you know, uh, might be six for a standard-sized apple tree. They might start producing in maybe six years, as little as five or six years, or it could be twice that long. There are some varieties, like Northern Spy is a famous American cider, uh, not not just cider apple, but eating apple and mm-hmm. pie apple, the great pie apple. That really takes um, really 10 years to start producing from a tree. It's very, uh, it's very, it's not at all. Um, precocious. I, I asked the question because I was curious if, if you know, the cultivated apples um, didn't, the seeds, you know, weren't planted until, let's say, the early 17th century. By the mid-18th century, the figures are like one in ten farms had their own cider mills, so they were producing a lot of apples. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the the, the uh, you know, as I say, the, the, the it came over in seeds. There were some people who who um, who were more wealthy who brought over trees in the fullness of time from from uh, Holland and France and and England. And one of the uh, the famous nurseries was actually on. Long, what's now Long Island, um, uh, the and probably in Queens, the Prince Nurseries, and uh, uh, you know he's a Huguenot, Huguenot um, uh, planter, and came over to America and established a, a wonderful fruit tree nursery there. Uh, Washington bought trees from George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and uh, you know a lot of our our founders, um, but th- th- that was. Uh, secondary thing the, the the first people would have brought over some trees or branches to graft onto existing native um, native uh, apple trees uh, that happened down in Virginia and it also happened up in New York where uh, Governor Peter Stuyvesant uh, actually had a farm in what's now the Bowery uh, and uh, and he um, one of his apple trees that was planted in the 1600s stood there for about 200 years until mm-hmm. it was knocked over after the Civil War. Hmm. Why do you think, I mean, cider making was so popular. Obviously, it was an inexpensive way to to get a beverage. And, and that's interesting. They needed a beverage, and they drank a lot of cider. So tell me, talk a little bit about that. Why yeah, cider I mean, flourished? Yeah, a lot of the settlers were obviously from the British Isles to begin with, and they had a, a an ale-drinking tradition, but um, that required, especially if you were living in New England at that time, which was a colder climate during those years, uh, you could grow hops 
fairly well, and people are starting to grow hops up here again, up in Vermont and New Hampshire and New York State. But uh, at that time, you couldn't really grow barley that well because the climate was not suitable for it. It was too cold. Um, so obviously, I mean, the, that being the major component of, of good ale, uh, it was difficult to uh, for them to, uh, to to do that. So apples offered an, another way to um, to have that kind of um, you know to create a beverage that was plentiful and and easy to produce and and it also had something to do with the rhythm of the seasons too because obviously most apples produce in the late summer early fall when there's less intense farm work that goes on and and people just literally you know had more time to mm-hmm. uh, to deal with them then they could they could uh, store the apples for a while and press them when they weren't so busy with everything else interesting well as with some of the early production of of ales and whiskeys even um, same with cider it, it was drunk not only as it means that people like to drink it because they could you know get a little drunk too that was fun um, it tasted great and but also the water water was not potable in many areas many settlements. yeah people didn't people didn't trust the water I mean there were so many far and you know, people were virtually all farmers at that at that time but they didn't have sophisticated uh, um, very sophisticated ideas of Keeping their cattle out of streams, or even in some cases, uh, you know, just they didn't. They, a lot of people thought that manure was just waste, and they would take them off and dump it in the stream. So you never really knew what you were getting downstream of a of a farm. Um, and uh, and so they, they either didn't like that or they didn't like the taste of the water. Sometimes there were very healthy mineral waters, but people just weren't weren't fond of the taste of it. Mm-hmm. Um, or you know, I mean, you really your only other choice was if you had ca- cows or other animals was milk um, that they really trusted uh, as as something that they could drink every day. Um, so it was yeah, it was it did offer another option. All right. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier that there was some American patriotism associated with with a cider barrel, and that came around election times, where the cider barrel was sort of signified um, Amer- all that was good in America, or being very American, actually being anti-immigrant. Also. Right, exactly. <laughs> it, was, it was what's good and bad about, right. <laughs> about America, even at that time. And it's kind of interesting to look back almost 200 years now, because that was the... Uh, hard-fought election of 1820, I believe, with uh, William Henry Harrison and James Buchanan. And uh, and uh, Harrison's, uh, you know, platform was sort of sort of the uh, the cider barrel was one of the symbols, you know, of, of, of his campaign. It's like, well, these are, this, it's a great old English tradition uh, sort of thing. So it was, again, yeah, it was a nativist sort of a, an image back then. So it's yeah. interesting that it was used in that way. Hmm. Uh, we're later in the show. We'll talk about uh, types of apples and then and types of cider. But um, so we saw this. But right now, sort of, kind of covering the whole you know history timeline, we had this terrific flourishing of of apple cider business. And how much did the industrial revolution and technology play in that? Well, it um, it actually uh, for for a long time it was one of the causes of probably or one of the the not proximate causes but maybe subsidiary causes of of cider declining because um, 
you know, why cider declined after the Civil War really uh, was pretty easy to see. People moved off the farms and into cities as a result of industrialization, and that's where the jobs were. So there was a, a far lower rural population. And at the same time, we had immigration from um, northern Europe like um, or central Europe like uh, Germany and uh, Scandinavia, and from Southern Europe, uh, places like Italy. And so, again, you have the beer and wine dichotomy there. You have the the, the Germans and and uh, and Scandinavians preferring ales and beers, and and in fact, in the German case, lager um, instead of ale. And uh, and you have you know Italians or Spanish uh, immigrants or people from farther south preferring wines because wine grapes grew better down there. So when they came over to this country, as, as the urbanization happened, that really allowed for uh, breweries to, to spring up in the cities. And, um, and that sort of flourished in the, starting in the 19th century. So, um, you know, that was a part of the decline. And then, quite frankly, there was a, it sort of got painted, even though, as you say, it's, it's half the strength of wine um, and is a very, very healthful and temperate beverage. It was, it was sort of painted with the same brush by the people who started the temperance movement, sort of pre-prohibition. Mm. And, um, and farmers actually went out. If they were sympathetic with the temperance uh, people, they would go out and sometimes chop down their orchards of apple trees um, and get rid of them. Rather, rather drastic methods, but... Oh it it suffered from, but, you know, it also suffered from the same things that happened in England, which is, as people became, moved to the cities, they would um, sometimes, you know, in a sort of, they would make in, industrial ciders, and they'd make ciders that would travel better, because it, you know, it's a fairly light beverage. It doesn't last for as long as as uh, wine or spirits or something. So they would sometimes, you know, adulterate it by adding rum to it and to increase the strength and make it more fortified. Or they would add, you know, uh, ingredients that weren't very good ingredients to it to sort of stretch the apples. And so that gave cider kind of a bad uh, reputation as well. Hmm. Well, we are now beginning to see um, a little movement into the area of distillation. And we're going to talk a little bit about that when we come back from a break. And Ben, I want you to tell us later on about the types of apples and types of ciders. So when we come back from the break, we'll hear more. All of us at Cane Vineyard and Winery are proud to support Heritage Radio Network and the growing movement to change the way we eat and think about our planet. For more information, go to Cane5.com. Hi, we are back on A Taste of the Past talking about cider and I have on the line Sarah Grady from Glenwood. Glenwood is an agricultural, um, nonprofit agricultural organization. And Sarah is the director of special projects. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, thanks. Uh, Sarah, there is a project going on at Glenwood um, called the Apple Project. Can you, because I was talking with Ben Watson and we, I just mentioned, um, we we're talking about ciders, but now there's been a movement into um, spirits with apple and distilling the, the cider. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
about the about the um, Apple project? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So the the, um, the mission of the Apple project is to increase the viability of orchards in the Hudson Valley by encouraging the production of hard cider and apple spirits. Um, so our the mission of our organization has to do with strengthening the regional food system in the Hudson Valley and helping farms to be more viable in this region where it can be very challenging to operate a farm. And, um, you know, we've seen this opportunity because the Hudson Valley is a historic apple region and in a leading apple state. Um, we've seen this opportunity uh, for the growth of popularity in hard cider and apple spirits to contribute to the viability of orchards. So that's our mission. And um, we've been doing a number of different things, working directly with producers in this region, um, both producers of hard cider and apple spirits. And um, and then also uh, trying to build the market and build market awareness for these projects. So, um, for example, the Cider Week initiative is part of that. Um, but um, there there has been just as we've seen, you know, this um, growth of popularity with craft beer and um, New York wine. Um, you know, I see this uh, surge in interest in hard cider and. Um, right alongside with that is, you know, craft distilling and micro-distilled spirits. And um, there is a really important connection between hard cider and apple spirits uh, in that the cideries and the distilleries are looking for the specialized apples that are really well-suited to these products. So there's a lot that the cider makers and the apple spirits distillers have in common in that regard. Um but as far as apple spirits go, um, you know, from our perspective, it's a it's a really excellent high value product that again will help uh, orchards to um, to see more profits um, from both producing those products and also selling apples for those those products. So I'd be happy to tell you about a couple of examples in the Hudson Valley if you like. Um, actually, we're, we've got to move on here. Um, sure. and, but I, what I wanted you to do is let people know um, well that you're working in conjunction with Colette Rossant um, and learning from some of the the makers in Normandy in in France as well, Yeah, that's right. right. So last year we programmed an exchange between uh, cider makers and distillers and apple growers in the Hudson Valley with producers of cider and calvados from a region, a southeastern part of Normandy called Le Perche. And uh, Colette Rossant, who is a very well-known food writer, helped us to make this connection between a group of producers here in our region with a group of producers there in La Perche. And um, the, the delegation from the Hudson Valley traveled to La Perche last fall, and we visited a number of different cideries and uh, Calvados producers. And the way they produce Calvados there is actually very different from the way that apple spirits are produced here, but there was still a tremendous amount to learn and to be inspired by. Well, production costs have traditionally been kept low with cider, but um, obviously, running a distillery and, and distilling the um, the spirits will, you know, is, is going to be a little bit more costly. Um, is do you think the the producers are prepared for that? Well, um, we do have a few established distilleries in the Hudson Valley who have already made that capital investment to establish, uh, you know, a still and. Uh, uh, an operation to create apple spirits. But I will say, you know, in terms of the exchange, one of the things that we saw there that was very inspiring and I hope will influence the way that the products are produced here in the Hudson Valley is that um, the Calvados producers in this region, in Normandy, <clears throat> don't each have their own still. Actually, what they do is they create their fermented cider at their operation 
And then they share in the operation of a mobile spill. And that mobile spill comes around and distills the portion of their um, fermented cider that they want to transform into calvados. Oh, interesting. And, and then even beyond, you know, so there's already this level of cooperation, but even beyond that, in terms of um, the aging and the marketing of their finer calvados, there is also a cooperative that pools their distilled um, young apple brandy and ages it together in a, in a cooperative aging cave. Um, and that is actually how they have uh, banded together to produce these 25, you know, 5, 10, 15, 25-year-old Calvita. That's interesting. It's, it's certainly a project um, to, to watch, and uh, those in the New York area can learn a lot more um, at the New York Cider Fest, and that's the week of um, October 12th. And you can find more information at ciderweeknny.com. Sarah, thank you very much. And one thing that Sarah did say that as far as um, something that she has written about, and that is that cider and these spirits will grow, and especially the Hudson Valley sitting on a gold mine, and demand is the one thing that will ensure success. So we look forward to seeing more about these projects. And um, and now back to our discussion on cider per se. I have a couple questions for you, Ben. And that is um, to describe cider. A lot of people, when they when they think of cider, hard cider, well, obviously sweet cider is, is is what it is. But when they think of hard cider, they think, oh, we're just going to have an alcoholic, sweet, gooey beverage. Can you describe really the the, the tastes and, and some of the differences of ciders as we know? Um, sure. I mean, the the familiar product and the thing that's driving a lot of the the uh, growth in the in the market right now which is good uh, in the sense that people are discovering it but it's it's a it's what we call draft cider the french call it siegela uh, industrial uh, industrial cider which is a little less complimentary but it's really it's made sometimes by uh, operations that are owned by breweries but in in other ways it is made in large volumes it's it's it has to be stabilized to some extent it's made year round it has to be shelf stable it's a very different product from from uh, what I call real cider, although I mean it is real cider, but it's 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 a very different product from what what you'd find at a farmstead operation or a small producer making this. Which it's much more, uh, you know, as you pointed out, often sweeter. Um, uh, it's just a different taste experience, and um, and you know they're they're experimenting with different things, and I think that the larger producers will will come out with lines of um, of uh, different taste profiles in time. So. Well, now does cider when it's you have to explain the the process to me. It's okay. It's it's fermented. It's a ferment process of fermentation, but then some of it's sparkling and some of it's still. Yeah, and the sparkling um, is sometimes uh, can be done naturally. You can do uh, a dosage of, of uh, some form of sugar in the bottle, or you can. Uh, some people have even bottle pasteurized cider after it was bottled um, to create sort of a naturally uh, sweeter or off dry or semi sweet uh, cider. But often, when you get the sparkling ciders, they're they're often achieved by uh, just bottling them with a counter pressure filler and adding some carbon dioxide to okay. it, um, which is, you know, again, it, it's fine and it makes for a rather 
it, it increases the pleasure often, but you lose a little bit of the taste, in my opinion. Um, uh, you know, if you're really trying to tell the differences of cider varieties or different cider apples that you're using in a blend, I find it often, to my taste, just to have a still cider that is naturally fermented without additional sugar, um, that's fermented to completion to dryness is the best way to tell what an apple will do naturally in a mm-hmm. in a in a drink, just like you would with a wine. You know, mm-hmm. you wouldn't you wouldn't throw a lot of carbonation into a red wine and then try to say, well, these grapes, uh, uh, these Tanant grapes that I'm using here, obviously they taste like X because you know it, it helps to mask the taste a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, does cider age like wine? Well, it. It it doesn't age. I mean, it doesn't age for decades and decades. That does not improve it. But the the conventional wisdom used to be: oh, you have to drink cider in the same year that you make it, or within anyway within two years. But well made cider, if it's if it's um, good quality and is is made well and is made in a in a sanitary way, not a sterile way, but a you know a, a, a sanitary conditions, which hopefully everyone is using, um, and is made from good apples that often have you know good uh, bricks or sugar level in them. Can it, some of those ciders can improve um, for four or five or even longer years, uh, even more years? Uh, there are some ciders that a few ciders that even benefit from that if if they're especially high acid but otherwise good uh, tasting ciders but they're too sharp sometimes leaving it in the bottle will help condition it and it might almost be better four or five years from now than it is today oh that's great I mean that, that I think that that anything that you can that can build the mystique around <laughs> around cider around a beverage I think increases the the popularity and people's curiosity and that, that certainly we need to um, to introduce more people to cider or introduce cider to more people you know, right? however we do it uh, let's you mentioned the different having good bricks and the apples and you also made some comment about um, the forgotten cider apples what are the best apples for cider for a for let's say a, a more um, sophisticated fermentation of cider something that we would not be you know that we we would be surprised to say oh gee i'm drinking apple cider what are the best apples for that well, it's hard to generalize because, I mean, when you're again, when you're talking about, I mean, I can give you some examples, but but the before I say that, I I mean, essentially, what you're dealing with with apples is the same thing you're dealing with with wine grapes. I mean, what you're looking for is it's contributing three things to the to the um, to the cider. Uh, Sugar, which is obvious, the the level of sugar in the fruit, you know, will be what's fermented, um, and it creates the alcohol and a fairly direct correspondence. Uh, acidity in the apple, and a little of that is good. Too much is probably, you know, you can throw things out of whack. Um, and then, and then tannins, and those are the things that are found quite often in in wild apples or in European type apple varieties, and those are the things that are that give you that that uh, sensation of like sucking on a wet tea bag, you know, it sort of puckers up your mouth, which sounds really not very good. But again, that is the thing that creates structure in a cider, just like it does in wine. And um, having said that, um, some of the great, you know, North American apple varieties, forget about the European bitter sweets and bitter sharps and things like that, um, would be something like Golden Russet, which is a New York State apple. Um, it's also an English apple, but there's one, an American golden russet, too. And that, that 
typically has a very high BRICS level or sugar level in it, and um, it's a late-ripening variety. Most late-ripening apples are, as a class, superior to earlier ripening apples. But there are other ones that are being rediscovered now, too. The Harrison is a cider apple that probably originated in New Jersey. We're not quite sure, but probably around 1800. And uh, a friend of mine actually was instrumental in bringing that back to Tom Burford, who's an orchardist from Virginia, was instrumental in uh, discovering uh, a source of um, Harrison apples that someone had discovered in New Jersey and uh, and sort of bringing that back into the nursery trade. And now cider makers are planting Harrison apple trees, and uh, it makes just a lovely, thick, syrupy kind of a sweet cider that um, is good for blending, but it also makes spectacular um, hard cider, too. Mm-hmm. Generally, generally, it's good to, um, instead of single, a lot of people make single variety ciders, but I find that almost any apple is improved by adding a few other types of apples that fill in the deficiencies of one particular apple variety. So blends are often can be quite sophisticated, but it, they're, it's good to blend different apples together. Interesting. Um, and just to set people straight, what is the difference between hard cider and Applejack? Hard cider is fermented, and if you, um, if you take that cider after you've fermented it and you take it outside and you let it freeze in the depths of winter, uh, it will concentrate just like it would in your in your freezer if you have sweet cider. You'll you know it would concentrate the sweetness. And in in the case of um, uh, Applejack, you know it would it would concentrate the the all of the non water components, including the alcohol, into a uh, in a very very uh, concentrated uh, sort of a uh, beverage that would be about fifteen percent alcohol, maybe. Mm-hmm. That's the natural way to make Applejack. Most people, when they refer to Applejack, they're talking about cider brandy, and um, and that's another commonly used term is Applejack. But that's that's distilled in the regular way, like what Sarah was talking about, right. you know, right. with an alembic still or some kind of a still. Uh-huh. Well, I think it's just it's fascinating that to see the. Um the growth or the re, the rebirth of cider and the cider industry in this country. I mean, a lot of it unfortunately happened. I mean, it happened from an unfortunate situation, people trying to save the family farms. Um, but the, the growth and boom of, of cider makers is, is wonderful. And I just, I hope that we can keep that going. Yeah. And I think it's going to be good for the apple uh, for orchardists too, for regional orchardists, because now there's, this year has not been a good apple year. You and I were talking about that before a couple right. of days ago, uh, just because of weather conditions. But uh, the price of apples is much better than it has been, uh, which helps to support uh, small farmers and regional orchardists. And and uh, cider apples themselves are something that people are looking into to start growing because there's more of a demand for using really good uh, cider fruit for, um, for, for making hard cider. All right. Now, sometimes... Uh these apples are not something you would want to pick off the tree and bite into. Is no, uh, they do have those tannins in the in the in the flesh and in the um, and in the skin that make them bitter. Uh, they're English and French and Spanish varieties that are being grown over here that uh, you know you would not want to eat, and they're really not good for cooking either. Um, so, really, the only use for them is 
to make really good cider out of them or to contribute to a really good cider. All right. Well, I mentioned the um, the New York Cider Week that's happening in October. You've got you're involved in a festival um, up your way um, in November. Is that correct? Yeah, the first weekend in November every year is uh, something called Cider Days. It used to be Cider Day, but it got so um, popular a few years ago, and we had so many people coming and so many much programming that it became a whole weekend of um, activities. And it takes place in um, in and around the Pioneer Valley in Franklin County in New Hampshire, which is around Greenfield, Mass. So for people in you know New York and Connecticut and that area, it's an easy drive up the highway to go to it, and it's, uh, it's, it takes place in a number of different orchards and venues and historic buildings, and it's, uh, it's just a fun, uh, fun time. You get to try uh, all sorts of varieties of cider at this uh, cider salon that we do from all over the country and, uh, and internationally, too. We have some international producers and brands that will be there, too. That's terrific. And there's a good web- way to learn about uh, if you haven't tried hard cider before. It's a good way to learn about number one whether you really like it and what kinds of stuff you like. Right. And I think I think a lot of people need more education in apple cider. I know I myself do too. Um, is there a website people can go to to find out about the festival? Yeah, it's just www.ciderdays.org. Ciderdays.org. Okay. Um, Ben, it's been, you've given me so much information and so many things that I have to go back now and, and research and read and, and indeed read the rest of your book called Cider, Hard and Sweet. Um, and it's a history and tradition of cider making. It also gives you instructions for how to make your own cider, right? <laughs> yep. It's incredibly easy to make. Um, it's one of, one of those things that's very hard to be, to, to, uh, to perfect, but it's very easy to get started and very inexpensive, too. Well, I'm going to end with a quote from your book, something that you say, and that is, A good natural cider is deep, dark, and mysterious, like a good pint of stout or a bowl of homemade gumbo. Drinking it refreshes the soul and leaves you wanting more. And I can say that about today's discussion with you, Ben. Leaves me wanting more. I want to learn more about cider, and I hope our listeners do, too. And thank you so much for joining me today on A Taste of the Past. You're very welcome. Nice to be with you. You've been listening to A Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.